You're listening to Byzantine Gospel Reflections, a podcast made possible through the work of the Institute of Catholic Culture in collaboration with the Melkite Eparchy of Newton. I'm Father Hezekiah Carnazzo, founder and director of the Institute and host for this program. In this podcast, we'll explore the historical and literary context, themes, and significance of the readings for the coming Sunday. This podcast was originally recorded as a video. For the full viewing experience, please visit us at instituteofcatholicculture.org. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. Heavenly King, Consoler, Spirit of Truth, present in all places and filling all things, the treasury of blessings and the giver of life, come and dwell within us, cleanse us of all stain, and save our souls, O good one. Welcome back to all of our participants uh, here for our Byzantine lectionary reflection for the Sunday of the Holy Cross, which is also the preparation for the Feast of the Annunciation. Our biblical text that we're taking a look at here on the third Sunday of Great Lent, or Mark chapter 8, verse 34 through chapter 9, verse 1. You might want to write that down, Mark chapter 8, verse 34 and following. Also, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14, through chapter 5, verse 6. Uh, So let's jump right in here, Father, to the gospel text uh, that's given to us for this Sunday of the Holy Cross, Mark chapter 8, verse 34. And uh, I I encourage you all to to get out your Bibles again so that we can can do this study together. Mark chapter 8, verse 34. The Lord said, If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For anyone who would save his life will lose it, but anyone who loses his life for my sake and for the sake of the good news will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world, but suffers the loss of his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation Of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes with the holy angels in the glory of his Father. And he said to them, Amen, I say to you, there are some of those standing here who will not taste death till they have seen the kingdom of God coming in power. Father, could you give us the context here in Mark chapter 8, in just simply kind of where this, this text falls in the gospel context? Sure, so the big picture is... This is at the end of the Galilean ministry. In chapter 8 is where we come to the, basically the, the close of that period, especially with the proclamation that he is the Christ at Caesarea Philippi. That's chapter 8, verse 27 through 30. That's the previous little passage. And then we come to this next section where Jesus begins, this is verse 31, he began at that time to tell his disciples he was going to go to Jerusalem, they were going to kill him, and after three days, he was going to rise from the dead. And then Peter says, no, 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 that's not how the story is supposed to go. We all know the story, and that's not it. <laughs> so then Jesus tells him, uh, he, he says, he, to Peter and the rest of him, he says, look, you guys, if you're, if you're concerned about this earthly life, then you're going to, in that way, you could, you could be in danger of losing your spiritual life, your, your spirit, your soul. If you're concerned about the things of this world, more than the things of the next. And so he tells them, look, you've got to take up your cross and be willing to follow me. Jesus said to them, I'm going to Jerusalem and the chief priests, the scribes are going to kill me there. Now, how is that going to happen? Well, there's an illusion here 
that is by crucifixion, which means they're going to hand him over to the, to the Gentiles. Now, this, um, this text, honestly, as it jumps out at me, seems to be a bit anachronistic in the sense that, of course, we know that Jesus is going to go to Jerusalem. We know that he's going to be crucified. We know that the way of the cross includes, uh, the, the, way the, the way, I should say, the way to the resurrection includes the, the cross. But they standing there don't know that. Is, I mean, so, so, I mean, either Jesus, either this is, an, this is anachronistic, so that the author is kind of putting words in Jesus' mouth, or he's being a total prophet for, in the sense of, like, more than we normally would talk about a prophet. He's a fortune teller in the future. Or maybe there's something a little bit more about what's going on in society that, that we don't necessarily know and understand. All right. Yes, you're right. I mean, when you listen to that, it sounds anachronistic to, I think, us today. And in a certain sense, you're right. But, and I know you actually know the answer to the question you asked, but it is something that we, when we look at a text like this, we often fall into that trap of it's either this or it's that. But what we have to remember is that there is a historical event and Jesus said and did things. But what he said and did, if, if all of was recorded, I don't think the books, the world could, you know, could, uh, there's just not enough space. There's so much. So this is what John says. Well, the same thing here, the gospel writers pick and choose particular words and actions of Jesus for their particular audience. And, uh, and so, and that's really important because that tells us then is that they're not just simply telling us about the life of Jesus. They're telling us about the life of Jesus and what that means for us, right? And, and so first and foremost, it, it, Jesus does say, and he says over and over from this time forward, he's telling them, I'm going to Jerusalem. The chief priests, the scribes are going to reject me. They're going to put me to death. And after three days, I'm going to rise from the dead. And he says it over and over as he heads toward Jerusalem now. And, but how is that going to happen? It's going to happen by crucifixion. And when we get there in the passion narrative, we're going to see that actually take place. They're going to hand him over to the Romans. Crucifixion was something the Romans did. And so Jesus does tell them here that he is going to die on a cross. This is the allusion to the crucifixion, and that you better be willing to do it as well. Uh, Peter is uh, you know, the one who is the one challenging Jesus here. No, this is not how it's supposed to go. Is the very one who we're going to see do this, where he goes to Jerusalem with Jesus. And even though he has great courage and says, Lord, I'll even lay down my life. Three times he denies he even knows Jesus out of fear of bodily death, out of fear of himself being crucified. But then he repents, as we know in John's gospel, and Jesus restores him to his very important role with that threefold question of uh, feed my sheep and do you love me? And so the, um, the Peter, the one asking the question that instigates this whole dialogue here is actually the one we're going to see. We're going to see do this in the end. And the disciples are going to have to make a choice in that early apostolic period, not just during the passion death of Jesus, but after that, they're going to face death. They're going to have to make a choice. And, and eventually, by the time we get to the, to the 60s, when Nero is in power, and then especially 
to Domitian. So from the time, from the 60s all the way up to the time of John the Apostle, there is severe persecution of Christians, and they're regularly being crucified, burned at the stake, and all sorts of things. And those Christians are going to have to make a choice. Uh, are they going to be willing to give up this life? Now, they have to, but, uh, they, they, not the, but if they're put in that situation, are they going to be willing to give up this life for the sake of the next one? Or are they willing to give up the next life for the sake of this one? And that's, I think, something that the catechumens certainly have uh, to ponder, huh? That's the, that's the challenge of the, the good news that's spoken of here. And I'm, I'm wondering if you could help us just to make sure that we're all on the same page on this phrase, good news. But, but anyone who loses his life for my sake and for the sake of the good news will save it. And I think the word here also translates gospel, if I'm not mistaken. And when we hear, I think as Christians, oftentimes as we hear that phrase, good news, or maybe more often we hear gospel, we think of, we think of the gospel text, you know, right. the gospel of Luke, the gospel. Of and we slide by this, 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 this phrase, which is so, I would say, power packed for the early Christians, uh, for, well, for the gospel of Jesus Christ. But I think most people would say, what's the good news? You know, they, first of all, they, they would have a hard time answering that question. But, but here, the good news is pretty bad. You're going to die. You know, you're going to die. You're not just going to die. You're going to die in the most horrible way. You know, that doesn't sound like good news to me. <laughs> you know, so, um, I mean, obviously, we know the answer. We're talking about a, a, a greater good. But, but maybe just to help us understand this word gospel, good news, and what it would have meant to those listening to Jesus uh, preach at that time. So, yeah, so the good news is, is when we think of gospel, like you said, we think of one of the four gospels or we, something like that. But the gospel, the good news, gospel is an old English word, God spell, from a tra- direct translation of the Greek, evangelion, good news, good announcement. But when we, when we take a Greek word like that, what we want to do is go back into the Old Testament and see how is that Greek word used so we can understand how it's being used in the New Testament. Okay, hold on. I'm going to stop you there. You're telling me that the, the term gospel is not just a New Testament term. <laughs> because, no, I'm serious. Because I think, because when we think of the good news, you know, the good news of Jesus Christ, but we don't, I don't think we think of good news in the Old Testament. You know, that's what Jesus came to give us the good news. Right. right? Before that, we didn't have it. Now we got it, <laughs> right? Lay it, on us, lay it on us, brother. Give us the Old Testament Bible religion. All right, here's a good example. Let's turn back to, the, to 1 Samuel chapter 30. Is a good example of this. So 1 Samuel chapter 30. So you're way back in your Old Testament to the books of Kings. Hold on, Father. My cell phone died. I got to plug it in. Just kidding. <laughs> They just just scroll back far enough. First Samuel thirty, all right. 30, yeah, thirty-one it is. Sorry, first Samuel 31. chapter thirty-one. If you only have, if you don't have first Samuel in your Bible, you're looking. You probably have four Kings, so uh, you have first Kings. But most Bibles, most of you probably have two books of Samuel. So second, I'm sorry, first Samuel chapter thirty-one. Saul, the enemy of the Philistines, is dead, and Saul's army has been destroyed by the Philistines. 
the Philistine kings and their armies had, de had defeated Israel and Israel's king, their human king. Yeah. And what they, what they do is what they always did back then, any, in these kinds of battle situations, not just the Philistines, the Israelites would do this, is you send a runner back from the battlefield. This is before cell phones. So you have to send an announcement back to the village, the, back to the city. So the, the city or the cities of a king are at war against the cities of another king. And the kings would go out in the battlefield. The battles were usually fought in the plain, like the plains of Jezreel, like in, the, in northern Israel. They, that's where you could run your chariots and things and have large fields, you know, full of armies. So they usually would fight in the plains, the, the, and the cities were usually up in the hill because they could be defended. And so the, the armies would usually meet, engage in battle in the, in the plain. And this plane might be something you could see from your village or your city, or it might be, at a, you know, 100 miles away. So the, what they would do is when the battle began to turn one way or the other, they would immediately send a runner back to the cities of the kings. The, so, you know, if the, you know, enemy A or, you know, nation A against nation B, nation A and nation B are both going to send their runners back to their villages or cities to, to, make, to announce to them what's happening in the battle mm -hmm. as the battle begins to turn one way or the other. Because if, there, if you see your king fall by the sword in the battle, you know, you're, you know your army's defeated. It's done. And so immediately a runner runs, flees before he, he tries to escape, and he runs back to the village because that's where all the wives and kids are and the elderly and tells them, hey, we lost the, the battle. The, our king is dead. The other army is now, you know, hacking to pieces the rest of our army, and they're going to be here soon to rape and pillage the place. So run to the, you know, flee to the hills. You hoped you, the runner would come and not bring bad news, but would bring good news of victory. And there are lots of places like this in the Old Testament, tons of examples, but this is a, I love this example because it really shows you that military context the, um, the Philistine army and kings had defeated the king Saul and the army of Israel. And it says, chapter 31, verse 8. On the morrow, when the Philistines came to strip the slain, right, to look for the swords and armor and helmets and whatever, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. So they realized, they didn't know this, but they had won the battle. They didn't just, they won the war. They didn't just win one little battle. But they realized when they find Saul dead and his son's dead, that the war is over because the, the other king is, is, is dead. So they cut off his head, stripped off his armor, and sent messengers, these are the runners, throughout all the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to their temples and their people. Okay, to, the, to their idols, to the temples and to the people. The temples are the place of the gathering, right? And, they, and, they, and this is what they did. So they put his armor in the temple of Ashtaroth, etc. All right, so the Philistines had good news. Their good news was our enemy who was trying to kill us and their, that nation Israel and their king is dead. And we have been saved by our gods, right? And our king. And... So they, they go and announce that to the people. And so in the, in the Israelites, when they would win a battle, do, do the same thing. They would send a runner back to the village or back to Jerusalem. We've won the battle. Our God reigns. 
And so this is what's going on in the New Testament. When Jesus talks about a gospel, a good news, he's talking about a massive battle that's taking place. But we're not talking about a battle that is going to kill you in body, like a battle between the Israelites and the Romans or the Israelites and the Persians, or the Greeks and the Israelites and the Philistines. No, no. This is between God's kingdom, his people, and their real enemy, the one that can kill not the body, but more importantly, the soul, right? It's a, it's a, and this, we get a, a, a window or a hint of this early on in the gospel, in Matthew's gospel, the infancy narrative, it says that you shall name him Jesus, that is Yahweh saves, for he will save his people from their, if you know the Old Testament well, you'd expect enemies. Instead it says sin, because sin is much more dangerous than a Philistine. A Philistine comes and can kill you in body, but that's it. Sin comes and kills you in the soul. That is, sin brings about death. This mm -hmm. is what St. Paul says in Romans 5, through sin comes death. And so the only way to, to save someone from death is through through the destruction of sin. You got to conquer sin first. And so the sin is the real enemy of the people of God. And sin is not, of course, the breaking of some rule, but rather turning ourselves away from God, away from the, our source of life. And what do we find? Death. And so repentance then is the returning back to a relationship with our source of life. There's an interesting image here, Father, that uh, is, I think, um, helpful uh, on this uh, Sunday of the Holy Cross in relationship to our to our, the image of, of man and our, our calling um, our restoration that you have this image of the soldier uh, in battle and also the messenger going out and bringing the good news uh, of course a soldier in battle cannot be one who's saving his life right I mean he's he, he is one who is laying down his life that others might be saved. Jesus says, for anyone who would save his life will lose it, right? For anyone who is isolating himself from, from, this, from this mission, this battle, uh, is going to ultimately lose it. But, but for the one who lays down his life, right, who gives his life, but anyone who loses his life for my sake and for the sake of the good news will save it. And, and, and there, I, I don't know... Um, uh, this this image that you've given us here from First Samuel about the messenger, who in some sense drops other things and goes about proclaiming the good news, right? Leaves and and goes running off to do this one mission to tell others about the good news that has taken place. Um, I think is also along with the soldier a good a good image for us. Those who are who are called to lay aside, uh, say lay aside our earthly cares to put ourselves at the service of the king uh, who has come to do battle against the enemy and ultimately is is victorious over the enemy and that and that good news which is given to us is the good news to which we are called to dedicate our lives to restore our lives during this time of great lent but there's something more here that i want to just just uh dig at a little bit just to make sure of course in these studies our goal is to just simply try to glean the historical, the literal historical understanding of the text. There's another text here I think that can probably trip some people up. Um, and it says last, the last verse. 
And he said to them, Amen, I say to you, there are some of those standing here who will not taste death till they have seen the kingdom of God coming in power. You know, I think there's a couple of ways we might look at this. I think most Christians probably turn a blind eye to this. Like, well, Jesus was kind of like, he was speaking, uh, well, he wasn't quite right. I mean, there, the fact is that this whole generation did die. And the second coming hasn't come again, right? The kingdom of God hasn't really been restored. And obviously, this is a misreading of the text. But uh, maybe you can help us have a proper reading, an orthodox reading of this text. What, what do we under, how are we to understand the kingdom of God, the coming of the kingdom of God? And how are we to understand those standing there? We're not going to taste death until it comes. All right, so that, that language Jesus says, he's going to come in, the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, appears again in chapter 13. He says in chapter 13. Now we're back here, Mark. We're back here at the text, guys. Mark chapter sorry. 8, because we were back in First Samuel. Sorry. Right. So Mark chapter 13. Chapter 13. Verse, this is Mark chapter 13, verse 26. He says, And then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory, and then he will send out his angel and gather his light from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. And then he says, verse 30, Truly I say to you, the generation will not pass away until all these things take place. So all these things. So that means, that means that he said it again, very similar. In fact, a little bit more here, a little more detailed. Now, if we go and look at Mark 13, Mark 13 is about his prophecy about the destruction of Jerusalem. And he says that will all happen within one generation. Well, that's 40 years from the time he said it, 40 years of biblical generation. Uh, he says it's from around 30. In 70, AD 70, Jerusalem's destroyed. But there's a lot more there. He's not simply talking about the coming destruction of Jerusalem, which will be by the hand of God and by angelic forces, not just Roman soldiers. This is God doing this, chastising upon the city. But more importantly, then, is what he's saying here is that this is a sign that the kingdom of God has come, right? It's a sign that the kingdom of God has been established because now, with the destruction of Jerusalem, it is a clear sign the old covenant is over. And so what's left when Jerusalem's destroyed, when the temple's destroyed of God's people, it's the Christians. The Christians are, are those who have been following Jesus, are the, is the, the remnant of the, of the people of God who have taken up the baton and are now charging forward. And so it's a sign of the glory of, of the early apostolic era. We're going to see the apostles being stoned, being crucified. We're going to see the early Christians doing these things. But while this is all happening, they also know by looking at the signs around them that the victory has already come, right? The victory over sin is what Jesus has done. And now this is the beginnings of the early time, the springtime of the kingdom of God. And that's, of course, what happens there. And then, but I, I do think, and I, I think it would be nice if you, if you could maybe connect this for us for the catechumen. Well, I was, I was, I was going to say that, that, that liturgically, time, in a sense, is, is shattered, and the, the, the heavens are torn open. Uh, it is now, it is today that Christ rises from the dead. It is today that he is crucified for our sins. It is today that we are baptized into him. And so 
all of what you're talking about that, that, that took place historically can also be applied to our life today as well as looking forward. There's nothing wrong with seeing and reading this text as many have in looking toward the coming of Christ at the end of time. And yet it has to be rooted in the reality of his coming and the establishment of the kingdom of God, which is the establishment of the church into which we are incorporated and baptized as members of the body of Christ. This is what the catechumen, of course, looks forward to. And all of us now journeying with him, look forward to the, this realization in our life of the, the establishment of the kingdom of God, the, the, good, the proclamation of the good news. And we are called then, during this time to do very much what that the messenger does right to leave behind him i have this i I don't know why i have this image today of the of the farmer you know plowing the field or hoeing the the the, his field and dropping the hoe right and running off to tell the good news of the battle which has just taken place i don't know if that's a reasonable a reasonable image or not and yet but i think it's a good image for us as, as christians making this journey of great lent across the sea of the fast the one last one last thing I want to mention here before we look at the epistle is that there's a there's a double benefit here with this reading as we prepare ourselves also not only as we celebrate the Sunday of the Holy Cross but as we prepare ourselves for the feast of the Annunciation. I'm going to pull up here on our screen the icon of the Annunciation, the archangel coming and announcing to the Virgin Mary the good news, and we notice that he is dressed very much in the uh, attire of the messenger who is coming now with his hair tied up uh, with, you said, like the baton that with a scroll scrolled onto the top of it, announcing the good news, which is now going to become incarnate in the womb of the Virgin Mary, that same good news, which becomes incarnate in our life as we, as we set aside those things which have kind of cluttered our lives, <laughs> making room for the incarnation of God so that we then can become messengers of that good news which we we've experienced. There's this. this so I love I love the liturgical year, and the more we know about the liturgical year, and the and the the wisdom of the saints and the fathers who place this before us, it it, it place it, it is the journey of our life. If we would just step into it and allow the uh, the biblical text to carry us along, allow the whole liturgy to be kind of the breathing of our life uh, as, it, as, uh, as we fast and we feast and we journey toward ultimately uh, the resurrection of Christ. Father, let's, let's take a look very quickly at Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 through 5, verse 6. 4, 14 through 5, verse 6. And we're going to take a look at this mostly because I think it's a confusing, it can be confusing to people. And, um, and I know you can give us some insight into St. Paul's writing. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. Brethren, since we have a great high priest who has passed into the heavens, let us hold fast our profession of faith. For we have not a high priest unable to pity our weakness, but one tried as we are in all things save sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence, so that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men in matters pertaining to God, so that he may offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to have compassion on the ignorant and erring, because he himself also is beset with weakness, and therefore must make offerings for sin in his own behalf 
as in behalf of the people. So no one invests himself with his honor. Only one who is called by God takes it, as Aaron was. So also Christ did not glorify himself with the high priesthood, but glorified the one who had, taken, who had spoken to him. You are my son. I this day have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Father Sebastian, maybe you can help us understand two things here. First of all, the you know, to paint the picture of what St. Paul is talking about, but also its application to the Sunday of the Holy Cross. Well, uh, so in the, in the original context here of St. Paul with the letter to the Hebrews, these, these are Jewish Christians who needed some extra catechesis from the Old Testament to answer questions that non-Christian Jews were asking of them. And so what we find here is St. Paul showing over and over in this epistle how Jesus is the fulfillment of the law, the fulfillment of the political priesthood, the fulfillment of the prophets, really, really emphasized here in this epistle to the Hebrews, to these Jewish Christians who are in need of some answers that are being asked of them by their Jewish brethren who have not accepted Jesus as the Messiah. And so uh, the, the Christians have been shown that Jesus, is, Jesus has offered the ultimate sacrifice. Jesus has conquered sin. Right? All of the sacrifices in the Old Testament were intended to deal with the problem of sin. But they would offer a sacrifice and offer a sacrifice, and they would fall into sin. They'd offer another sacrifice. There was a lamb for this kind of sacrifice, a goat for that kind of sacrifice, a bull for this. It is all in the book of Leviticus. And so what the Christians are being told, what they've been told from, from the beginning and emphasized really here in this epistle, is that Jesus, his death and resurrection has conquered sin and death. And so there is no, no, no more need to go to the temple or to go to or to offer these sacrifices in the Levitical system, nor therefore is there any further need for the, the Levitical priesthood, because Jesus has done what those things were were intended to uh, in a, fix in a preliminary way to deal with. Jesus has conquered, has fulfilled that that uh, that purpose. How and how did he do this? Well, Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. And if he's the Christ, he's the Messiah, the anointed king of Jerusalem, then he is, and this is in the, in the text here, we get this quote from Psalm 2, you are my son, I this day have begotten you. That's, that's Psalm 2, a very Davidic psalm. That's, you can hear there Paul saying, Jesus is the long-awaited fulfillment of the son of David, the king, the Christ who has returned. And if that's the case, He's also a priest according to the order of Melchizedek, Psalm 109 or Psalm 110 in some Bibles. So the, why does he say that? Because David inherited the throne of Melchizedek in Jerusalem. He conquered Jerusalem. He inherited the city and became, and became the center of the kingdom for the Old Testament. And that is the city where ancient Melchizedek once ruled. Melchizedek is a character way back in the book of Genesis. And if we go back into the story, we can see why he's important in Psalm 109. We can see why he's important in the story of Genesis, why he's important in the New Testament. Melchizedek was the priest of Jerusalem, priest of Salem, Jerusalem, that offered 
bread and wine is a sacrifice to God and blessed Abraham, which is a critical part of the Abraham story. God called Abraham back in chapter 12. And in verse three, he says, and through you, all the nations shall be blessed. He called Abraham from the nations so that through Abraham and his descendants, a blessing could come upon all the nations. That was the whole point of the calling of Abraham. So that all those from whom he was called could eventually be saved. For God desires that all men be saved, though not all will. He desires that all men be saved. Right? We have a free will. We can make that choice. So, so David has inherited the throne of Melchizedek. He is the, the, has inherited, therefore, the priesthood of Melchizedek. And if Jesus is the 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 inheritor of the throne of David, then he has also inherited that throne of Melchizedek, who has offered up that great sacrifice on the cross, which Jesus says is intimately connected to his offering up of his body and blood, or the bread and wine, just, to, just earlier at that Last Supper, which of course is very important for us and for the catechumens today. Yeah, of course, we're journeying now towards Pascha, towards the, the catechumens' entrance into the church, and they're their, uh, their baptism, chrismation, and reception of, of the Holy Eucharist. And there's this beautiful phrase that I constantly come back to, that we, ha- we have not a high priest unable to pity our weakness, but one tried as we are in all things save sin. And we are all journeying together with the catechumens now toward Pascha, toward that great sacrifice in which Jesus offers himself to the Father um, and uh, as Melchizedek had taken up bread and wine, and as we are called to do in the Eucharistic sacrifice, to unite ourselves with Christ, to become this, this, this self-gift as God has given himself to us to offer ourselves back to him. But of course, coming with that is all of the challenges and struggles of the attachments we have to this world, uh, to the things upon which we normally share communion with and are dependent upon. And when those things are taken away from us, it's like a, uh, say, a crutch or a, you know, a walker for someone who has a hard time walking. And we feel during this Lenten season, we take it seriously. And I'm sure the catechumens are feeling this way. I hope all of us, this sense of, this sense of, oh, I can't let go. And, I, and, and, and I'm going to fall without these things I've become so dependent upon and reliant upon. But, but we now learn now to become dependent upon the Lord who has become like us in all things except sin. Uh, and when we struggle, um, we know that the Lord is there and understands more fully uh, the struggles we face because he is the one that has made us and has experienced in himself the struggles which we face, uh, the challenges and the weaknesses which we have, and yet has, does not turn away to sin and, and rely upon these things in his life, but turns and relies upon the Father totally, giving himself to the Father and sharing this perfect communion as we are called to share. Father Sebastian, thank you so much for being with us today on this uh, as we prepare for the Sunday of the Holy Cross. And may God bless you all as you prepare for this Sunday and continue our journey of great life together. May God bless you. Thank you for joining us for the Institute of Catholic Culture's Byzantine Gospel Reflections podcast. The Institute of Catholic Culture is an adult catechetical organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. I invite you to explore all we have to offer, including over 900 hours of on-demand catechetical opportunities, 
and sign up for our upcoming events by visiting instituteofcatholicculture.org.